This week on Crime World... There was a Republican police from 1920. I mean, the IRA was effectively trying to run an underground government. And actually, there was a crime wave. 1919-1920, there's a wave of bank robberies, post office robberies, robberies of individuals, robberies of pubs in Dublin and in rural areas as well. So the IRA tried to actually clamp down on that. They, on occasion, solving bank robberies and giving the money back to the banks. Now, I'm Nicola Talent, and you can listen to my podcast, Crime World, wherever you get your podcasts. Shachtan, an Indo Askeliga. Time in Mon Europe, the end of Chacht Erechor. Agasuligum, a Makan Shah, Gurfeder Echor, Inuik Kart, Len of Winterfein. Skilti, Fis, Turmi. Tashe Dochretche, Nach Vetoch, Ara, Igornamion, on Kestin Echol. Vientalam Aginom Griv, Orkar Nrachtum. Find us on all the usual podcast platforms. Stala is Vesna, Sto Ukraina, known that Ukraine created an atom bomb in Chernobyl. According to Ukrainian intelligence, Russia is preparing a terrorist act in the Chernobyl power station. The Russian army found in Ukraine a chain of American biolabs. Russian biologists speak out against fake news about the biological weapons that Ukraine is allegedly developing. Today on the Indo-Daily, propaganda wars, how the conflict is being reported in Russia and Ukraine, and the fight against misinformation. Russia began its invasion of Ukraine three weeks ago. In Moscow, the propaganda machine cranked into gear. Russia's communications regulator has banned the use of the words invasion and assault in media reports uh, on the war in Ukraine. Amid a crackdown on protests and independent media outlets, the Kremlin blocked access to social media sites. The Kremlin today blocked Facebook and Twitter, and there are no independent media outlets left. Staff at one of Russia's most prominent independent television stations have resigned live on air. In response to the Russian military invasion, the EU banned the state-owned media outlets. We will ban in the European Union the Kremlin's media machine. Last week, the Russians bombed a maternity and children's hospital in the city of Mariupol. (laughs) Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky called the attack a war crime. The Russians said the attack was faked, bizarrely claiming a local beauty blogger staged her injuries with makeup. Mothers, all uh, pregnant ladies were uh, taken out of that building, and this was a base of the ultra-radical... I'm Fionanchin, and today I'm joined by Ukrainian Tanya Lokot. Associate Professor in Digital Media and Society at the DCU School of Communications, and Jason Corcoran, a journalist who has been writing about Russia for the last 15 years. Tanya, what what perception do we get here in the West about how this war uh, this conflict is being reported in Russia? Well, I think the West's perception is very much shaped by um, Russian state-run media, which are currently sort of dominating the media landscape in Russia. They've been blocked at this point, I think, uh, across a number of social media in Europe, but they are still very much operational in Russia. And, you know, of course, what we see here in the West is those um, 
really, um, really shocking video clips of of those, you know, nightly news shows and, and bulletins where they're they're just full of propaganda. You know, where they're openly talking about not only um, kind of cleansing Ukraine, but also going across and maybe going further. Um, and so I think that comes across as you know they're they're absolutely out of their mind. I think what the West might miss a little is also the reporting of those independent Russian media, many of which have been squeezed out of Russia, but nonetheless continue in some shape or form to report on what's actually going on in Ukraine and also what's happening in Russia, you know, the the unrest, the protest against the war. So I think the West's perception is perhaps more uh, you know, it's shaped more by the state media than by all the other efforts. And Jason, is there, do we feel an understanding uh, amongst the Russian population of what's actually going on? Uh, I think, what do they think is happening? Yeah, I think half of the population believes that this is a special uh, military operation, um, that this is targeted in Donbass alone, where they have to, to commit sort of denazification of the region to purge Ukraine of this this uh, this Nazi problem. So, and then other half who are, have been deprived of the remaining 10 independent uh, media outlets in the past two weeks rely on Telegram. It's a fantastic messaging app system where they can get testimony from friends, colleagues who live in Kiev, who live in Mariupol. So they're getting videos, they're getting personal sort of a witness material direct from, from people in the war zone. So they know what's going on. As a result, then, are you saying it's the better informed people are the ones who are engaging in, in the protests that we've seen? I would say the protests, um, Fionnan, have been very minor. So if you go back to 2011, when Alexei Navalny, the opposition leader, was, was at the height of his powers, he brought 200,000 people onto the streets of Moscow. We saw maybe thousands mm -hmm. in Moscow, Max and St. Petersburg. So the, the protests are, and the people who would be mindful to protest, they're on planes to Baku, they're going to Yerevan, they're going to Istanbul, they're trying to get out because these, these are the brains, these are the, the young guys yeah. who have got a future. They're, they're leaving. And do, do we get the sense, so, Tanya, that anything is even getting, like, there's a, there are a lot of, of cultural links between Ukraine and Russia. Is, is there feedback coming from family or friends that people know in, in the Ukraine? Is, is that filtering back into Russia at all? It, it definitely is. Um, and I think, like, as Jason suggested, a large part of how people are informed is through those more informal and personal messages and stories, because there are a lot of familial links between Russia and Ukraine. Um, many, many people have family in Russia, Ukrainians, I mean. At the, on the other hand, what we're also hearing is that, especially among the more the older population in Russia, a lot of the people who even have families in Ukraine simply refuse to believe when their relatives tell them what is going on, you know, that they're being bombed, that they're having to escape from enemy fire. And so this is, I think, a really tragic um, moment where, you know, they've been so brainwashed by Russian propaganda or, you know, by the kind of choosing to believe that what Russia is doing is correct and it's also limited to Donbass or, you know, it has some sort of purpose that they they choose to not believe their own relatives, you know, and their own friends. And I think that's that's probably one of the biggest tragedies, to, apart from the tragedy of what's happening on the ground in Ukraine. But I think there is still an important 
group of people in Russia who potentially are interested in finding out what is really happening or, you know, who maybe are doubting what they're hearing in the official channels. And I think it's those people that, um, you know, the Ukrainian government and, and Ukrainian civil society and just ordinary Ukrainian social media users are trying to target. So they're they're using multiple um, sort of tools or, or strategies to do so. You know, like they, they will go into restaurant reviews on Google um, Maps in Russia and they will just share information and post photos and tell people what's going on, you know, in those in those very unusual places. But of course, there's also the Telegram channels and, you know, all the Ukrainian media um, trying to use Telegram, trying to use um, Twitter and Facebook to a lesser extent because those are now blocked in Russia, but trying to use every ab- available means to just share information, you know, not necessarily sharing narratives or stories, but just sharing facts and evidence, which, you know, sometimes is quite powerful because here, yes, we're talking about emotional content, but, you know, that emotional content is actually what is happening on the ground, you know, in cities like Mariupol or Kharkiv. Then coming to the other side of the, of the border, um, in the Ukraine, they have, certainly from a Western perspective, uh, seem to be very much winning the, the information war. They have got a, a president who is, is, who is very media savvy. What, what tactics and strategy do you believe that they have employed on the Ukrainian side in order to harness uh, support? Uh, I think, you know, the fact that um, Zelensky is on the ground and he's not cowering in a bunker or standing at a very long white marble table in the Kremlin. He's he's on the ground and he's evidently in Kiev. You, you, you can't sort of, you can't sort of disguise that fact. He's with his troops and he's, he's posing with soldiers and people, or civilians who have been the victims of the bombs. And but Putin just looks far removed from the front line and from reality. So that's just a huge gulf in perception. Yeah, and and at the same time, we have seen that there have been okay, there's a language barrier, but there has been some uh, access to to Western media. Obviously, the address to to Westminster was was powerful uh, in, in its own right. So is is that serving any purpose for the internal audience, or is that entirely about the the external narrative to to keep uh, aid and and yeah. military? Well, I think Zelensky is, he, is, he speaks languages, he speaks, you know, his Rus- he's native Russian, right, Tanya? And then Ukrainian is, is his second language, so he can he can address Russians, and he's got pretty good English. Does he speak other languages? I'm not sure, but I think he's, yeah, it's, it's important to see that he's actually spoken English in some of his interviews with Western media, so he understands, obviously, the importance of, of showing that he is able to communicate to different audiences. But I would agree, like, he is addressing different audiences. That's why very often in his short clips that he posts every morning and every evening, he switches languages midway. Yeah. So we kind of see that he's talking to the Ukrainian citizens and then he stops and he addresses the Russian population. I think that's really important because yeah. it, yeah. you know, it shows like that he he cares about what they hear and about what they should know. And Putin speaks very good German and very good decent English. Mm-hmm. When he was uh, putting together uh, Russia's uh, bid to host the Olympics, he did this huge speech in English. It was very stilted, but he can do it, but he'll only speak foreign languages in very controlled environments. Yeah. So he doesn't want to take any risks. But Zelensky looks more authentic because he's willing to take that risk and directly speak, appeal to the foreign Russian audience or to the English-speaking audience. How concerned, Tanya, do we do we need to be about the Ukrainian military amplifying their their wins or the Russian losses and and kind of trying to dilute down how exactly the war is progressing on their side. 
I mean, I th- I think it's a concern. I also think you know we are in a live military moment where things are moving very quickly. And, um, you know, I think the Ukrainian military themselves have admitted that, you know, the numbers they're releasing are are not necessarily super accurate. But it's also, you know, it's all part of the war. Like you, you just can't release everything. Like you can't say exactly where the military units are located just because that's, you know, that would pose danger to them. So I think everybody is now un- un- aware that these numbers that they release every day are, are kind of ballpark numbers. But I mean, of course, you know, both the Ukrainian and the Russian side seek to minimize their own um, casualty numbers and, and maximize the enemies. But if even so, if you compare, like the Ukrainian side has, at the like a few days ago, Zelensky did uh, talk about the number of losses on the Ukrainian yeah. side, whereas the Russian side remains very, very minimal and, and almost silent in terms of how, how many soldiers they have lost, you know, either who have either died or been captured. So there is still a world of difference. And I think the Ukrainian side has tried to really release this information in a structured way and also to present evidence where they can. They've certainly been helped in that by those open source investigators who are trying to get visual confirmation of, you know, every tank and, and airplane destroyed. But, you know, I, I don't think anybody anybody is under any kind of... Um, like nobody is expecting there to be super accurate numbers simply because, you know, in places like Mariupol, because you can't get in there, you just don't know how many people are dead. And, you know, the numbers coming out of there might be slightly high or slightly low, but that's just what it is. You know, we have social media, but if, you know, if your city is offline, you just can't get through to people. So you really don't know. Can we talk about a couple of incidents that have, have come out and see what what your 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 take is on them? The, the first one was the the, the Chernobyl takeover. Yeah, there was this claim that Russia was uh, Ukraine sort of was plan. Sorry, I'm getting mixed up with all my misinformation. <laughs> that uh, the Ukrainian side was planning a false flag operation around Chernobyl, the nuclear plant, um, that um, they were taking corpses of people and they were planning to stage some sort of, you know, sort of chemical sort of discharge. And uh, it's really hard to prove, you know, this is something far-fetched that possibly that the Russians could try to do. But, you know, if you go back to MH17, the the passenger airliner that was shot down by Russian-backed rebels in 2014, they were, to, 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 to avoid actually admitting what happened, they were putting up so many wacky theories um, that the Ukrainians had shot it down, that there had been bodies that had been put into the cargo prior to the plane leaving from Amsterdam and that the plane was empty and it was shot down by Ukrainians or by, by NATO or whatever. So it's in, in the fog of war, it's just really hard to, to know what is, is true. But this it seems like really far-fetched. Yeah. What about the, the, the biochemical lab accusations that we've seen? had data and we have data that Pentagon, the Pentagon is preoccupied about the chemical and biological installations in Ukraine because Pentagon built two biological war labs. Russia has a history also of inventing outright lies like this, which is the suggestion that the United States has a chemical and biological weapons program, or Ukraine does, that they're operating. Russia is the one, is the country that has a chemical and biological weapons program. So, uh, so this is Russia saying that 
the Americans are running a biochemical lab in in cahoots with the the Ukrainians inside the Ukraine, and and that is part of the reason why uh, they're undertaking this operation. Uh, exactly right. So so Russia found yet another excuse for why they're waging war on Ukraine. I think at this point they have a very long list. In this case, they they try to justify these these accusations by releasing some some documents that they've allegedly you know found somewhere or leaked from some of those alleged labs. And it was very interesting to see, well, first of all, both the, the Ukrainian side and then the, the the U.S., because they were also accused of participating, flat out deny this and say that, you know, none, none of nothing of the sort is happening. There was also a really interesting and very thorough debunking of this by a group of um, biologists and chemical, like chemists, the scientists who were working as a group, including Russian, Ukrainian and other scientists who looked very in very great detail at those documents and said, look, these are just normal documents that any kind of uh, academic or research lab would have. And there's nothing in there that would suggest any kind of military or war-related operations. These are just normal normal reports about what kinds of toxins are stored in that lab and how they are destroyed, because that's just a normal thing you do in a lab yeah. like that. So I think it's really important to have both the very official debunking and saying like, no, nothing of the sort is happening. And also having those kind of more granular things that maybe not everybody will see, but, you know, they present very conclusive evidence that this is all just a bunch of a bunch of lies. And then, you know, if we go back and think about Russia and their own um, biochemical activity on the ground, which is obviously quite well documented around, um, you know, Navalny's poisoning, around um, Skripal's poisoning and around all of those things. So it's, it's really interesting that Russia is very often what it's doing is it's taking the accusations that have been leveled against them and turning them into accusations that they're lobbying back at Ukraine, the US, UK, and whoever else they see as their um, their enemy. Yeah, and, and, and capitalizing on the fact that the you know, people still remember the Americans' own weapons of mass destruction allegations from 20 years ago in Iraq and the, the British 45-minute uh, attack theory and so on. Tanya, the, the maternity hospital, uh, the bombing in, in Mariupol, now... That woman who was who who was pictured being carried out on a, on a stretcher, it it now has has emerged that she has died and her and her her, her baby has died. It was it was such a, a powerful image that really hit home w- with people. But the attack itself again contested. Zelensky says a war crime. You targeted a maternity hospital. The Russians say no. You were you were harboring um, military there. It was a base for ultra radicals. People, women were evacuated in, in advance. What what do we make of of that? Um, I think, you know, this is very much sort of, I don't like the word playbook, but this is Russia's playbook because, you know, they have this narrative that they're denazifying Ukraine. So they're trying to present as much um, convoluted or, you know, um, kind of collected evidence that that's exactly what they're doing. Um, in this case, I think it was quite quite a quite a weak attempt on their part because, you know, we had video and photos from the ground in, in shot by both Ukrainian photographers working for, say, Associated Press and other, um, me- including West, some of the Western media channels who were report- whose reporters were on the ground. So it's very difficult to contest, you know, when you literally see women and, and uh, medical workers being carried out and uh, escorted out of the rubble. Um, so I think in this case, like they tried their best, you know, they tried to present another woman who was pictured as as a false false actor, you know, yeah. crisis actor, because she was a model and she had an Instagram account. And the Ukrainians basically reacted and said, well, 
she can still be pregnant. And here are photos of her on her Instagram being pregnant, you know, so it's a real person, you know, models can also have babies. Yeah, like yeah. what's, what's like, what are you saying here? Um, so I think, you know, the, the, uh, the attempt was certainly um, in line with what Russia has done before, but I think there was just an overwhelming amount of evidence otherwise, including, you know, again, open source um, confirmation of where the hospital was located, where the strike happened, the, the, the time of day and all of that. Yeah. Similarly, with the attack last weekend at, in Irpin, where a, a family of refugees were fleeing, hit, direct hit by, by a shell. In that case, quite clear that it came from the Russian side because there was a, uh, a Wall Street Journal crew just literally across the road. The Russians were back straight away going, no, that was fired by, by uh, Ukrainian nationalists. So this use of false flag conspiracies and so on, it's, it's part of the, the, the Russian strategy. But is, it, is anybody buying any of it? Uh, I think, you know, th this part of the world, eastern Ukraine, is, has just been bombed con consistently, you know, tit for tat for such a long period of time. And the people, when they're told what to believe, they, they, sometimes they want to believe it, even though th the facts suggest otherwise, yeah. because they've bought in fully. Maybe they've gotten a Russian passport. Maybe they're getting some social services. Maybe they're getting payments and the relatives are in are in Russia already. Mm -hmm. I mean, I've my wife and I have friends who, who've left in the last 10 years from Eastern Ukraine to go to Russia for economic circumstances. They speak Russian. So, and Moscow is sort of like the Mecca. So they kind of have to believe in it or they want to believe in it, even though the facts suggest otherwise. In the West, we've had the EU banning Russia today, slash Putin today, whatever you want to call it. Tanya, what, what do you think the West should be doing? I mean, you, can can you just censor and shut everything everything down? And does that matter if that information has been filtered into a Russian audience anyway? Um, I mean, you know, I think th what the EU has done is certainly like there's been a lot of debate about whether or not they should be banning or using other sanctions against Russia today and Sputnik and, and their, their ilk. I mean, I think it, it certainly helps because there is, you know, a number of, of people in, in living in the EU, including like Russian diaspora and, and whatnot, who choose to maybe watch those uh, media and support. I think equally as important um, would be also promoting credible sources of information and, you know, including information from those who are reporting on the ground, um, in addition to just banning, you know. And I think, like, you can probably ban these uh, media outlets at least while the war is in its active form. I don't necessarily know that it would justify banning them forever. Uh, but, you know, perhaps, you know, there are other things they can do. And certainly this does a lot less for what filters down to people inside Russia, because, you know, they're still available inside Russia yeah. and they're still on the air. Uh, and instead, then in Russia, it's really important that people somehow have access to those alternative sources of information, which is why there's been this discussion. You know, um, there's been some talk of um, like Internet connectivity uh, and some internet um, exchange points and traffic exchange points pulling out or, or severing connections with Russia. But I think that would only, you know, further alienate people in Russia because then they would not have access to anything. So I think while we can talk about banning certain sources that are clearly propaganda and clearly spreading fake news, it's also really important to preserve some sort of means for people inside Russia be it through VPNs or through Telegram or through whatever, to have access to those sources of information, because otherwise you just end up 
with a vacuum that is very easily filled with Russian disinformation. Officials from the official state side. Jason, where, where do you stand on the, the, the censorship in inverted commas debate? I think you need to keep, as, as Tanya said, you know, the lines of communication open. I mean, in, in the hope one day that, you know, the, the administration, this administration, well, the Putin administration has been in power for 21 years, but there has been more media freedom that, is, that has blossomed over that 20 years. Uh, I, when I first arrived in, in Moscow in 2005, you could see that happening. And then when Dmitry Medvedev became president from 2008 to 2012, suddenly you saw the arrival, the emergence of TV Rain, TV Dost, uh, which is, was a new voice and compelling voice and with, was free, free journalists. A new generation of Russian journalists were born and you saw a fantastic business uh, publications, Commerçant Vidamosti, which are sort of clones of the FT and the Wall Street Journal. These guys reporting on the markets, you know, sort of accurately and, and doing some fantastic things. But then, fortunately, Medvedev, he was just a placeholder for Putin and Putin came back in 2012. And this idea that he was going to eradicate legal nihilism and, you know, have, have more media plurality was just, was, was, was fake really. But you have to leave that you know, the door open for, you know, for something to change in the future. Tanya, can I just ask you from your own perspective, you, you personally have, have still have family in, uh, in, in, in Ukraine, in, in Kiev. What, what's your perspective now on, on th- their safety? And I think it's very uncertain. I mean, certainly Kiev as the capital has, I guess, enjoyed relatively less, um, you know, uh, of those indiscriminate attacks that we've seen in other cities such as Kharkiv or Mariupol in the southeast. I think it's very tenuous at the moment because obviously the Kremlin's goal and Putin's goal is to take Kiev. And we can also see, you know, them trying to regroup and sort of gather their forces. Nonetheless, I think people are hopeful and, you know, that's why they're trying all they can to just bring forth some sort of resolution, either a ceasefire or some kind of diplomatic resolution. And your parents are still there? They still have access to, to food, water, electricity? Yeah, I think in this case, Kiev has mostly been spared. For now, they're, you know, they're fairly safe. They have access to water, food, electricity, medications. But they also understand that, you know, if they continue to be blocked off, those things are going to stop. Um, so I think everybody's very conscious, you know, that this this is kind of a temporary safe situation. So I think, you know, I think a lot of people are really upset. You know, like my dad was born in 1938. He had to escape from Kiev as a very young child under bombing. Um, and he just, he is very, very distraught at the fact that this is happening again. Um, and, you know, as he likes to joke, obviously Ukrainians are still reserving the ability to joke. He says like, this is not how I imagined my retirement. I'm Fiannan Sheen, and today's episode of the Indo Daily was produced by Mary Carroll, researched by Mark Donlan and Tabitha Monaghan, with sound by John Smith. Clips from Deutsche Welle, MSNBC, Sky News, and France Vancat. If you enjoy the Indo Daily, don't forget to like, follow, and leave us a review. <laughs>